Uh, so a few years back at a job I previously had at a cell phone company. Now, I've shared stories from this job before, so many of you know, uh, maybe know who I used to work for. To not implicate the guilty, I will not say the name of this company today. Uh, but I was there. I did not like the job at all. I didn't want to be there. I liked my employees, and that was about it. Uh, and so I'm, we're selling, right? And for me, part of the reason why I didn't enjoy it is because we had to sell people a bunch of things that they didn't need and that they couldn't afford, right? And so we had all, had all these quotas that we had to hit, and it wasn't a fun thing for me at all. And one day, this guy walks in, and he wants to open a business account, a business account with, 100, with 100 brand new lines and 100 iPhones. And so he, he, this rep is helping him, and it's very clearly fraud, right? It's very clear. Uh, he has all the pr- paperwork that he's got a company, all this sort of thing, and, but it's very clear that it's not actually going to go through. The, f- the fraud department flags it, and so the rep tries to get our managers involved, and our managers are trying to push it through uh, because they want to get paid, right? And, and part of the reason why it was so frustrating to me, and maybe some of the other sales reps, is that we had quotas we had to hit every month. And if this sales rep does a 100-line deal just in one day, next month, all of our quotas would go up. Now, the managers didn't care about it because they were business ads, which for in the cell phone business industry is a really big deal. And for them, uh, making up 100 lines on the next month is not a big deal because through all of this, through all the store combined, they could easily do it. Now, what happens is if you, have a, if, you have, if you give somebody what's called fraud, you get what's called chargeback. So the next month, you're in the hole that many lines. And so this sales rep, if this transaction were to go through, would it be in the negative 100 lines starting the next month? However, the commission was going to be so big that he did not care, right? The commission from this deal alone would more than make up for the fact that he would not get any commission the next month. And so long story short, the rep and and our managers are trying to push it through. They do eventually push it through. And what what do you know? It's fraud. It doesn't matter. Uh, it gets charged back. The store in the next month, starting negative 100, the rep's uh, uh, sales uh, commission for next month is going to be zero. But they both made a ton of money out of it. Now, for me, I'm standing there and I'm frustrated, right? I didn't do anything wrong. I, this isn't fair to me and my other um, employees because now we were going to be punished and we didn't even get paid for it, right? There's no good out of this at all for us. And I share that story because this morning we're looking at this question. How should we respond when life is unfair? Whether it's in a relationship, whether it's at school, maybe it's a job that you have or have previously had, all of us have been in situations where bad things happen to us that were completely out of our control. There was nothing that we could do to stop it. There was nothing that we could do to prevent it, but we were negatively impacted from it. And so the question again is this, what do we do when that happens. And that is exactly what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Esther chapter 2. If you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you. You can flip to page 434 if you would like to read along. And if you do not own a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Now, I'm going to try to recap as best I can. We are in the third week of our series of Esther. Uh, This Old Testament book takes place about 480 BC in the Persian Empire. At this point of human history, uh, the Persian Empire is the largest and most powerful the world has ever seen. Uh, the first two chapters roughly give you the super cliff note versions. Uh, we saw that Xerxes, or the, his Hebrew name is Ahasuerus, which is the predominant way he's described throughout this book. He's the king of Persia, and he has this massive six-month banquet because in three years, they're going to uh, enact a military campaign against Greece. At the end of this six-month banquet, he calls his queen Vashti to come and present herself in front of the other uh, royal politicians that he's 
he's trying to garner support from, uh, she refuses, and so she is banished from the kingdom. She is no longer the queen. In chapter two, last week we saw this is about uh, three years after the, or, sorry, about a year after the failed military conquest against Greece. Uh, the king is trying to is essentially kind of licking his wounds. He's kind of recovering from this defeat. One of his advisors says, "Hey, why don't we pick a new queen?" And as we saw last week, it was a very sad process where essentially uh, the king took young women from all over the empire, uh, basically had them go through a bunch of beauty treatments. All of them would have one night to sleep with the king, of which he would choose one queen. Esther, who this book is named after, is the one who he chooses as queen. That's the super quick uh, cliff note version. And so that is where we find ourselves. Uh, Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Here's how the story picks up. It says, when the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not revealed her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. And so sometime after, we're not quite sure what, how long this might have taken place, maybe about six months, perhaps a year after uh, Esther is queen, he gathers everybody around a second time. This perhaps was kind of her uh, coronation ceremony, uh, but, but, but so that happens. And Mordecai, again, if you're not familiar, uh, is Esther's cousin. Uh, Esther was essentially an orphan, and so Mordecai raises her. And so after this happens, she is now queen, and we see Mordecai sitting, which again shows us uh, that this Hebrew has some sort of official royal position, because at the king's gate is where things of politics and the kingdom were discussed. So again, remember that this Jew had assembled, uh, assimilated so much into Persian culture that he had somewhat uh, climbed the ranks. And so he's there. Uh, Esther again had hidden her Jewish identity uh, because he had told her to. And verse 21, here's what happens next. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bichthin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. Uh, and so what's happening here is that Mordecai finds out, again, he's, he's where all these things are discussed, he somehow finds out that there is an assassination attempt against the king. And so he tells Mordecai, or he tells the queen, and the queen tells the king and gives Mordecai credit, and here's what happens in response to that. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Now, what's happening here is actually quite significant and quite important, especially if you were an original reader of this text and you were familiar how uh, things customarily went down. What was supposed to happen is that we see that this is recorded, which is going to be a significant event because the king is going to read about it in later chapters of Esther. But what is supposed to happen is that when somebody like Mordecai in this instance finds out about an assassination attempt and informs the king, there is supposed to be an immediate and public kind of uh, thank you from the king to this person's behalf because you wanted to encourage this type of behavior, right? You wanted people to do things that would support and encourage and keep the king alive. And so you would assume after he kind of foils this attempt that he would get some sort of public recognition for what happens, but that doesn't happen. Right? That doesn't happen, which would have been a very significant thing, very unfair thing to happen to, mortify, to Mordecai. And so again, the question for us this morning is this, what do we do? How do we respond when life is unfair? Because just like Mordecai should have been rewarded in this situation, I think all of us would say that there have been times in our life where we did the right thing, maybe we even did the faithful thing, 
and then things didn't go as they were supposed to. They were unfair. Again, as I've shared my story before, I'm in college. You know, Christina and I would get married. Uh, we start. We help this church plan. I'm working on my master's. We're working all these part-time jobs. And about two ish, two uh, about two years into this uh, church plant, I'm looking at other church jobs, trying to maybe go to church that's growing, maybe a little bit bigger, because we kind of learned the church plant thing. We wanted to kind of learn how to do things when they were established, because we wanted to plant a church one day. And so I started applying to all these jobs and started doing all these things, and no churches would hire me. Right? Nothing would work out. And so long story short, we eventually decided maybe Raleigh's where we wanted to be because Christina and I are both from this area originally. And so we moved back to Raleigh. I get the job at the place that I did not want to get a job at, right? And so not, not only did I not enjoy the job, but every day I was frustrated because I assumed that I did the faithful and right thing. Like all of our, a lot of our friends after graduation, they're getting full-time jobs. They're, they're, you know, so if they're married, they're getting like two full-time salaries, which is awesome. Christina and I are like trying to like have this tiny budget. We're working all these part-time jobs trying to make these things work out because we're trying to be faithful to what we believe God has called us to do. And so this whole time I'm at this job and I'm frustrated because I'm like, this is not fair, right? I should not be here. And what we need to remember when we are in situations like that, especially as we reflect on what happened to Mordecai, is this, that our level of trust in God, it, it determines our response to unfair treatment. Right? So when you and I find ourselves in situations that are unfair, right? it's not even just that we might perceive them to be unfair. They actually are unfair. What we need to remember is how much we actually trust God in that moment determines whether or not or how we actually respond. Now, what's interesting about Mordecai's story is that later on in Esther, it is actually going to be a good thing that he was rewarded now, because later when he is going to be rewarded, it's going to kind of uh, completely counteract something that's going to happen even worse to the Jewish people. What's interesting is that when I reflect on my own story about working a job that I didn't want to work, I look back on it now and think, man, that was actually God's grace to me, that I was there learning things and being around people that I needed to learn and be around in order to better equip me for what God might want me to do in the future. I was frustrated, but it was actually a good thing. And when it comes to maybe trusting God when things are unfair, this is where uh, things like revenge or vengeance come in, right? Revenge happens when we think that we have to respond, when we think it is all on up to us to respond to something that is not fair. So I think of, and maybe this is not a completely fair example, but I think of my kids, right? So Finley, my daughter, she's almost five. Uh, Roman, our son, is almost two. And Roman is awesome, and I love him, but he's a bully, Right? He's just a little bully, and so we're trying to get that out of him before he goes to school. And plus, uh, uh, you know, on top of the fact that he's a toddler, there are many times that he messes with, her, with his sister, and she doesn't like it, right? And so in that moment, when he is doing things to her that he should not be doing, she has to decide, do I actually trust mom and dad to handle this the way that it should be handled, or do I need to do something about it, right? If I tell mom and dad, are they just going to tell him to say sorry, which I don't think is a fair response? Or do I need to take this into my own hands? Now, to be fair, she's five. She ain't really probably thinking to that level, right? But that's probably, in some, in some degree, that thought must cross her mind. And so when she does not think that mom and dad will handle this in the appropriate manner, she does things, she takes it into her own hands. But if she actually trusts us in that moment, even if she doesn't like it, she will come to us so that we can deal with it. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, whatever situation you find yourself in, we need to remember that how much we trust God in some ways determines how we respond, even when things are not fair, as, they, as is the case for Mordecai. And so with that being said, let's pick up the story. Chapter 3, verse 1, here's what happens next, and things actually get much worse for Mordecai. 
It says, after all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Uh, he, pro- he promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position the, uh, than all the other officials. Now, this is probably about five years after Esther becomes queen and the assassination attempt has been foiled. And we're not told exactly why, but Haman apparently did something to get promoted. Now, what is supposed to be sticking out to us, what is significant to us, is not just the fact that Mordecai did something really great for the king and got nothing. And then this guy Haman did something that we're not told and gets promoted. What's even worse is that he was an Agagite which if you were an original Jewish reader of this text, would have been an extremely big deal. And so what I want to do just for a minute, it's going to be a little technical, but I want us to understand what this actually meant for an original reader and why this was such a big deal, that not only did Mordecai get passed over the Jew who did a good thing, but Haman, who is an Agagite, gets promoted, and why this was such a devastating thing if you were a Jew. So an Agagite is the same thing as an Amalekite, and just some quick Jewish history so we can understand what's going on here. Uh, The Amalekites were the first people to attack the Israelites when they left Egypt. So so Israel has left Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness trying to get to the promised land. And essentially out of nowhere, the Amalekites attack them and try to destroy them and kill them. If you're familiar with this battle in the Old Testament, this is the battle where Moses has to hold the staff over his head. And so they're fighting each other. The, The Israelites are victorious. The Amalekites leave. Now, because of this, Uh, God uh, promises Israel that one day when they are in the promised land, he will completely destroy the Amalekites. As a side note, we're not going to get into it this morning, but in a few weeks, we are actually going to talk about what do we do in the Old Testament when God tells his people to destroy other nations. Like, what are we supposed to do with that? But for this morning, what we need to understand that part of the reason that this is such a big deal is because an attack on the Israelites is actually an attack on all humanity. Why? Because it is through Israel that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would be born. And so God has to preserve these people so that he can bless the entire world. And so God says, because of this, when you get into the promised land, you will blot them out uh, and blot out their existence. And so the Israelites get into the promised land, and eventually Saul becomes king. Saul is the first king of Israel, and he tells the, Saul, tell, the, God tells Saul and the Israelites to go and attack the Amalekites. They do that. However, Saul is not completely faithful because the king of the Amalekites at that time was King Agag. And instead of taking him out, instead of destroying him, he actually preserves his life and some of his best sheep and cattle. And so he does not, he's not faithful to God. And ever since then, there has been an intense battle between the Amalekites and or the Agagites and Israel, that there was an intense hatred of one another. And so you not only see that not only does this Agagite rise to power, which was a big deal, but he also, but Mordecai the Jew did not get anything for what he would have done. This would have been a really big tension, and this would have been extremely unfair. And so with that, let's see what happens next. Verse 2. It says, the entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage, homage, homage excuse me, to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day, and he still would not listen, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage, he was filled with rage. 
In other words, here's what's interesting here. One of the difficult things as we're seeing throughout Esther is that we're not told why the characters behave like they do. We're not told their motivation. And so we don't exactly know why Mordecai does not bow down, right? Is it for religious reasons, right? Is it because he's assimilated so much, but he remembers uh, the the Amalekites' unfaithfulness against God's people, and he says, this is something that I'm no longer going to do. I'm not going to go any further. I'm not going to bow down to this man. Is it because uh, maybe it's for a political reasons that he's upset that that Haman gets uh, that gets promoted and he doesn't? Uh, is it just because maybe it's not religious reasons, but it's maybe it's just because he grew up as a Jew and so he grew up just not liking the Agagites and he knows this guy's an Agagite? We are not told, right? We're not told. Now the majority of commentators do believe that there are probably religious motivations uh, in play here because we're told multiple times uh, in this passage, uh, we're reminded uh, that Mordecai is a Jew, but at the end of the day, we do not. Know No, however, he will not bow down. Now, what's also interesting is that Haman doesn't even notice until this is pointed out, right? Haman doesn't even see it, but then it's pointed out, and it's also pointed out that he was a Jew. And so uh, something bad is going to happen because of this. Verse 6, here's what he decides, or here's what happens next. Uh, And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, so when Haman learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to to, to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. Now, what's interesting here is Haman is very close to the Hebrew word hama, which means wrath. And so we're supposed to also, as we read his name, see that this is not good. And finally, what we see here is that the plot of this book is revealed, that something bad is going to happen to the Jewish people. Now, what's interesting, that if you had never read this story before, and maybe for some of you, this is your very first time reading and learning what is happening to Esther, and so this is a great place to be. Here's what's interesting, that you can begin to reflect on what God has done up to this point, that God was faithful to Mordecai and Esther, that God has brought a queen uh, to be the queen all over Persia at this time, and so you're not quite sure what's going to happen but you begin to see that God just might be up to something. And that's important for us to remember because we need to know this, especially when life is hard, that seeing God's past faithfulness helps you trust him in the future. Like when things are difficult, when hard things are coming your way, when you remember, when you look back on how God has been faithful to you in the past, it helps you trust him in the future. Again, we don't know. Maybe we're not quite sure what is going to come of this, maybe this genocidal attempt on, uh, from Haman to the Jews. But we do know that up until this point, God has been faithful to the Jewish people, even though they didn't ask for a queen, even, even though they didn't do anything to deserve it, that God has already been moving, right? And I think of uh, maybe examples in my own life, right? So before we planted New City Church, I did a church planting residency at a church here in Raleigh to kind of get trained and equipped for what we are doing here. And so I had to raise my full-time salary for a year, which was hard and was difficult. However, raising a full-time salary for one year is not the same as having to raise money to plant a church. And so after raising salary for, uh, for our family for a year, then became the time to raise money for the church, which is a much bigger and much more monumental task. However, because I had already seen God be faithful in a smaller thing, I trusted that God could be faithful again. And so I don't know what you might be going through with your life or in your life, but the question you could ask is this, that what is one small thing that you can trust God with now 
to help you when life gets hard in the future. You see, following Jesus, maybe reading our Bibles and spending time with the Lord is not just about what we can get out of it now. It also prepares us when life gets hard. And so one of the small things that you and I could do now, maybe you could be generous and begin to trust God with your finances now, so when difficult things happen in the future, you know that he will be faithful and he could provide. Or maybe you could take part in what we're doing as a church beginning today, which is our 21 days of prayer and fasting. Now, we're not saying you need to go 21 full days without eating. Eating, but that is a very real thing that you can do. Maybe you just want to say, I'm going to fast from what for one meal a day over the next 21 days. Or maybe for the next three weeks, I'm going to fast for 24 or 48 hours in total. Or maybe there's certain types of food that I'm going to fast from over these next 21 days as we seek the Lord on behalf of our city and our church. That is one small thing that you can do so you can see how God might move, how God might encourage you to help him or help you trust him in the future. Whenever we go through difficult things, looking back at God's faithfulness, faithfulness in the past helps us trust him in the future, which is what we can do here. That we're not quite sure what's going to happen, but we do know that God is up to something because Esther has become queen. And so here's what happens next, chapter 3, verse 7. It says, in the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month. And it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. So the twelfth year, again, is about five years after Esther has become queen. And the pur is cast by Haman to see when he should actually plan uh, this genocide against the Jews. Now, this pur is kind of a maybe a pagan astrology, magicianal method uh, to consult the gods. Maybe you could think of it, maybe it's kind of like rolling the dice in our age today, right? So they would go and they would say they would, they would go to the gods with something they wanted to do. And they would kind of do the pur to see when the gods want them to actually make this happen. And so that is what Haman is doing here. He's trying to figure out when he should make this genocide take place. Verse 8, then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for the deposit in the royal treasury. And so what we see here is that the Jews were scattered throughout the kingdom of Persia. Now, uh, there is no doubt that Haman is exaggerating maybe their impact and their number to try to get the king to agree to what he's trying to do. However, we do see, and we've been talking about this, uh, that the Jews uh, were assimilated into the culture of the, of the Persian culture. However, that many of them seem to have still kept this an enough of a distinct identity that people knew that there was something different about them. And so Haman goes to the king and says, there's these different people, they have different laws. Not only does he probably exaggerate their influence, but he's also exaggerating how, exaggerating how much money they could steal from them after they killed them, right? Begin. He's trying to get the king to agree to what he's trying to do. So here's what happens. Verse 10. The king removed his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with it as you see fit. And so again, the king gives his signet ring to Haman, uh, meaning that Haman has uh, the absolute authority of the king to do whatever he wanted to do. 
Now, what's interesting here, and as we've seen even for the first two weeks, if you've been a part of what we are going through, that the king is undoubtedly an evil man, right? He has undoubtedly done things that are despicable, uh, that are awful. Uh, However, in this moment, in this moment, he actually becomes the passive party to this evil, right? In this moment, it is actually Haman who is the one leading the charge. And here's what we know, right? I think all of us would agree that those who are leading the charge of evil should be held accountable. We should look at them with disgust. We should kind of not like what is going on. However, being passively complicit to evil, maybe you could say it's not as as bad as leading the charge, but it is also evil, right? We should not be okay. We should not be complicit when we see evil in our midst. And that is what the king is doing here. You could think of maybe some of the easy examples to think of, right? If you think of Nazi Germany, for example, right? It was really just the, the government and maybe uh, some, but not all of the, of the uh, German people in Germany who were pointing out and, and, and kind of trying to bring the Jews together so they could exterminate them. However, even if the vast majority of Germans did not take place, uh, did not take part in this extinction, what do we do know? That the vast majority of Germans did support the cause. Maybe after the war, they could say, well, I didn't, uh, I didn't try to uh, arrest any Jews. I didn't try to point them out. However, they were complicit because they did nothing to stop it. Or maybe we could think of an example that's closer to home, right? We could think about slavery, right? How slavery was a despicable and evil thing. And you could point out, well, in the South, the vast majority of people did not own slaves. And that is true. However, the vast majority of people in the South did agree and did say that this is an okay thing to do. And so as we read this story, and as we even think of maybe things in our lives, of maybe evil or maybe things that are not quite right in our lives, and we're not quite sure if it's worth saying something, here's what we need to remember. That our love for others is measured by what it may cost us, right? Our love for other people is measured by what it may cost us. It is really easy to say you support somebody, to say you love somebody when it doesn't cost you something. But when it actually costs you something, that's when we actually see if you care or not, which is why stories, when you go back to the Civil War era, uh, the era or even before Civil, the Civil War began, you see people who are working on behalf of the slave. When you see white people who are working on behalf of the slaves who had everything to lose, you are moved by their example. So John Rankin is somebody who comes to mind. Uh, John Rankin was a pastor in Tennessee. He becomes ordained. I believe he was a Presbyterian pastor. He gets his first church in Tennessee which is the South, and he goes before his elders and he says that we should, uh, uh, we should strip away or we should take away the membership of all slave-owning uh, members of this church and everybody who supports slavery. His elders looked at him and said, you need to leave. That is not happening. And so he eventually moves to Ohio and becomes one of the biggest stops on the underground railroad because it wasn't just enough for slaves to be getting to the emancipated states. If they wanted their true freedom, they had to get into Canada because just because they were in the north, they could still be captured and sent back to the south. And so this man gave the rest of his life to pastoring a church in Ohio where slave owners could not be members, where he became over 2,000 slaves can actually point to his stop on the railroad for their freedom. And for the rest of his life, he was beaten. He was uh, attacked. He often had to, him and his family had to, uh, 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 had to fight off people who would come to their house in the middle of the night to try to uh, burn their house down, to try to steal things, to try to damage their well-being. But he gave his life to the cause. And so we're moved by that because as a white man, he did not have to do anything, but he did. 
Or you think of the story of Elijah Lovejoy. This is a guy who did not even become a Christian until he was about 31 years old. He grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and he was a journalist. He becomes a believer. He starts writing articles in favor of abolition, that the slavery should not exist. Eventually, the company that he works for goes out of business. They're told that they had to stop writing articles about this, but they so believed in what this man was doing that they donated all of their equipment to him so that he could still publish the articles. Eventually... He is run out of St. Louis. He goes across the uh, river to Illinois and continues to print uh, articles in uh, in favor of uh, giving slaves their freedom. Eventually, three times, his house and or his printing uh, press in Illinois is burnt to the ground, but he starts over every single time because he says, this is not right. And then on the fourth attempt to burn down his house, they bring a shotgun and they kill him. And we look at that story and we're moved. Why? Because it cost them something. And we say they actually loved these people. Now, for us, we have to think about maybe to a smaller scale, maybe if there's coworkers, maybe there's people in your life that are suffering, that are in pain, that need someone to come and support them. It might cost you your time. It might cost you your resources. It might cost you your finances. But if we love people, it actually has to cost us something. That's how we know whether or not we love them. And so let's continue, and we'll finish uh, the part that we're going to read this morning. In Esther chapter 3, starting in verse 12, here's how the story ends for our purposes today. It says, here's what happens next. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet king, or the royal, sorry, sealed with the royal ring of the king. So again, what's happening here is that essentially the date of the genocide was signed and is put into place. Now here's what's interesting, especially if you're original reader. The day that this genocide was signed was hugely significant for the Jews. Why? Because it was signed on the eve of Passover. Passover was the celebration of the Jews' freedom from Egypt. And so they're just about to celebrate and remember God's faithfulness to them. And now they're being told that you actually are going to be completely wiped out from the face of the earth. This is a really big deal. Verse 13. Letters were sent by the couriers to each of the royal provinces, telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left spurred on by the royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa, which is the capital of Persia, essentially, and the king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. So essentially, again, the edict is sent out and is saying in this day, it's roughly a year from now, though not quite, that this is what's going to happen, and everybody is confused. Now, we're not quite sure why you know, people in the kingdom, particularly, particularly in Susa, are confused or are questioning what's going on. It could be because they thought, man, if this could happen to the Jewish people, it could happen to any one of us. Like any day, the king could wake up and say, I want to wipe out the certain people in our kingdom, but for whatever the reason is... They're confused, and it's going to happen. Things do not look good. And it is in this moment that we're supposed to ask, what do we do? 
Like, what are we supposed to do with this? Maybe for you, you are going through things that are extremely difficult for you right now. Or you have a family member or a friend or a loved one who's going something who's through that is extremely difficult. And we say, this is not fair. What do we do? Here's what we do, and here's what we need to remember. That our hope does not only come from God's goodness, but also from his power. Our hope does not just reside in the fact that God is good and that he loves us, right? Just because God is good and just because he loves us, that is not enough. He has to have the, actually, actually has to have the power to do good things, to override evil on our behalf. Again, good intentions without the ability to do anything with it is useless. It's right. It's, it's cute and it's fun when you have a kid that says they want to maybe solve world peace or solve world hunger. Or they want to do all these awesome things. And you love that about little kids and you're, you're encouraged by that. But at the end of the day, it doesn't move you because you know they don't actually have the power to do it. Right? They don't actually have the power to do it. And this brings us to a very important term. It's a kind of a, I don't know, kind of a churchy word, if you will, but it's important for us to understand. This is what God's providence is. See, providence is not just sovereignty. Sovereignty is this idea that God is sovereign. In other words, that he is in control over everything. Providence is not just the fact that God is in control. Providence is his protective care over us. That in other words, because God is good and because God is powerful, he is providential to do, to bring about good things even in the midst of evil. And when it comes to things that are not fair, when it comes to things that are difficult in our life, as we remember that God is good, but he's also powerful. Here's what we need to know, and here's the point of this text for this morning, that God's providence is greater than life's injustices. God's providence and his goodness reigns and is supreme even of the most evil and difficult times. And there's no better example of this than the gospel. What is the gospel? That God himself would come in the form of a man, live a perfect life for us, lay down his life for us, be killed on a cross. You would say, right, this is the biggest injustice in human history, right? If God exists and he comes into his creation and is rejected by his creation, only the only reason he came is not to do anything, not to get something from us, but simply because he loves us and we rejected him and we crucified him. You would think that it is over, that it is finished, and there's no hope for us. And yet, what does God use? He uses that single event to give hope and grace and forgiveness in a relationship with him to all of humanity, to anyone who would desire to come after him, no matter how broken you are, no matter how messed up you are, no matter how unfair life has been to you, that none of us are too far gone, that none of us, that God would look at us and say, I came for this person and this person, but not for you. The gospel is that Jesus came for everyone, that in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of the unfairness of life, in the midst of even our own screw up, he says, I'm here and I love you. And all you have to do is be honest, right? All you have to do is be honest about the fact that you and I fall short. You and I are not perfect. You and I need help, that life is hard. And God said, this is why I came, to give you grace, to give you forgiveness, to invite you into my kingdom where one day there will be no more genocide, there will be no more pain, there will be no more hurt, there will be no more cheating, there will be no more heartache, and it's all because of me and my providence. The gospel is God's invitation that no matter how difficult life is, no matter how impossible it may look, that there is hope for us, that there is grace for us, and there is the truth that God loves us and that he cares, even when we don't see him and even when we do not know what 
what's going on. And that's exactly the case in this book. People have no idea where God is. Again, God's name is never mentioned. And yet, as we see as we go, that God is even in the smallest of details, even when things happen that are not fair, even when things happen that should not happen. Remember that God's providence is greater than life's injustices. And it is because of that that we can have hope and that we can trust him even in the darkness, darkest of times. And at New City Church, we have this thing called the $5 Give Club, where if you're not familiar, every month we invite our people, you guys, many of you, to give an additional $5 once a month, and we take that money and it goes to a family or a nonprofit in need that we don't want to highlight, and each month we share a video of the impact your generosity made. And so this morning, we get to share with you this month's $5 Give Club video, and it highlights this truth. That God's providence is there, that his light is there, that the hope of who he is and what he has come to do for us is there, even when life is unfair and even when the odds seem insurmountable, God's providence is greater than life's injustices, and we get to see it this week. Turn your attention to the screen. Hey, New City, and welcome back to the $5 Gift Club, where we believe through small amounts we can make a big impact. This month, I was able to sit down with Susan Henson, who uses her time, her resources, and even her home to love the people of Raleigh in amazing ways. We cannot wait to share with you how your generosity made an impact this month. So I'm sitting here with my new friend, Susan, um, who honestly loves Raleigh in an incredible way. But Susan, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself um, and what's been going on these last few years? Great. Um, yeah, so I'm Susan Henson, and I'm the founder of Pharaoh's Daughter. Um, that is a ministry for pregnant and incarcerated women here in Raleigh. Women who are in that position yeah. really don't have a lot of op options, so it's either foster care or to send their baby back to a family member, which may or may not be safe. Right. And so, so, so those are the two options. So if you're, if you're pregnant and incarcerated, your family either goes to the government or to not maybe the best family situation. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't think this is something that we always think about. And so how did, how did this idea, you know, take place? How did, how did Pharaoh's daughter come to be? I guess when I think about it, I was raised in a family that sort of took risks for God. Yeah. I remember never really knowing who might be for dinner, you know, might be <laughs> right. present for dinner, um, you know, back in the 70s when hitchhiking was a thing and Jesus freaks and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, my parents would just pick, pick people up, bring them home, witness to them. Sometimes they stayed a week. Sometimes they had dinner and left. And so I didn't really put those pieces of the puzzle together, but I guess I was groomed for stepping out of the comfort zone yeah. um, to minister to other people. So when I found out that women who are pregnant and incarcerated have this really dismal choice to make, um, it really it hit my heart heavy. Yeah. Um, and at first, I, I got to be honest, I was not warm to the idea. I knew that, that there needed to be a solution. Right. But... There was no way it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The next baby I was going to take care of would be my future grandchild. Right, right. Um, I had done that. I have four kids. They're adults. I'm done. Yeah. Um, but as I sat with that idea and realized, yes, someone needs to do this, but God was asking if that someone would be me. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to say no to God. 
when you think about all that he's done for you. So um, that's the position I found myself in. And so it was really from scratch. Like, well, how do we get these babies? You know, what do we do? I mean, legally, can we do this? Right. So as it turns out, we can. Um, And by a miracle, in 2017, we got our first baby. And so we're sitting in your home right now where there's babies downstairs. (laughs) Um, So not only did you answer the call, but you literally opened your home. I mean, there's there's toys surrounding us right right now. (laughs) And so you literally will take in not only babies, but if their mothers are out of prison and still need to get on their feet, you take in the mothers as well, correct? Right. Why is that your problem? It just, it just drilled a hole in my heart. Yeah. And... You know, being a parent myself, I I could not imagine not being allowed to parent my child if I wanted to. Yeah. Um, So I think it's my problem because it's God's problem. Hmm. And, you know, we sing that song, you probably do too, of, you know, break my heart for what breaks yours. And so my heart was broken for what I believe is something that breaks God's hearts. And I think that that's, you know the work of Satan to just break apart families in whatever way he can. And this is, this is one way to bring families back together. And you've helped how many families? Well, we've, we have to date, we have um, served six moms. Man, that that's so incredible. And so the work that you're doing, I think is something that I've personally, I've never even thought of, you know, what happens to pregnant women who are incarcerated? We don't think about it, but someone has to, right? right. Someone has right. to take care of these these babies and these mothers. And so, Susan, thank you for sitting down with us um, because we just wanted to hear your story. We wanted to hear of how you are loving Raleigh, serving Raleigh, and the cool thing that you are doing with mm-hmm. Pharaoh's daughter. But we have something at New City Church called the $5 Gift Club where we believe through small amounts we can make a big impact. And so we invite all of our people to give an additional $5 on top of their monthly offering. And so while I want to hear your story, a little bit more. I just have a small gift for four hundred and sixty dollars um, oh, for Pharaoh's daughter for you because we see what you're doing. We see the difference that you're making and the way that God is just working through Pharaoh's daughter. And so this is for you. It's four hundred and sixty dollars. And so Susan, my last my last question is: How can we pray as a mm. church, as a people? How can we pray for what's next? Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for this gift. Um, and it will definitely be used. The babies continue to need to eat and have diapers. They do, I don't, don't know, they? Right? So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the the daily and monthly expenses mm. is definitely a place to pray. Um, I think the hearts of the moms and the babies who come here, because um, they get practical help, and you know, we're we're here daily with them mentoring them yeah but for them to embrace the gospel and for them to uh, for us to be able to not only help them um, stabilize and get on their feet in a real you know worldly kind of way but also spiritually for them to really be hunger hungry for the word and to realize that you know there's somebody that doesn't count their past someone who loves them in spite of their past yeah and um, we are the hands and feet of Jesus, but we only represent one that's really after their heart. Right. He is the lover of their hearts. And so for them to get that, that's, you know, if, if all we ever do is help them practically, 
Uh, it, it's too hard. It's a hard job to take care of these moms and babies. But if I think that there is a chance that they'll come to know Jesus, I'm all about it.